Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Scripture is clever. When Simeon stands in the temple waiting, he does so at the pleasure of his master. He has no agency, control, or personal expectations, yet he has a duty. As his very name suggests, He is to hear and obey the words of God until his death, trusting that God will fulfill his promise to achieve salvation, carrying those words in victory over the nations. He has no right to insist on an outcome, and at the same time, no right to lose hope. So what was Simeon's job? What is a man with no agency supposed to do? The prophet David said, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forever. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Stand firm, stand your ground, hear and obey. Trust in the words of scripture. Stay the course each person in that state in which he was called. It's not that a person of duty does not have agency. On the contrary, such a person transfers agency to their allegiance. They still have work to do. The literary metaphor of Simeon standing firm at his post reflects such work, which defers all agency to the commandments of God. Standing firm in anticipation of a great war with no hope of victory and trusting in God for salvation to the point of death is hardly standing still. On the contrary, it's frightening, challenging, and as the story goes, honorable and breathtaking. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke Chapter 2, verses 27 to 32. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 465 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about the transliteration in the Greek of the Hebrew name Simon. 
And it's easy to dismiss something like that as just the choice or the mistake of a scribe copying a manuscript. But it's more likely, given the frequent occurrence of the name, not just in the Gospel of Luke, but throughout the New Testament, that there's something going on, especially when the occurrence Simeon in Greek is so infrequent in the New Testament. And one of the things I suggested last week, Richard, when we were talking, is that there's a possible link with Acts, which is part of the Lucan diptych, and Paul's gospel to the Gentiles. And of course, Peter will eventually, in the story of the New Testament, betray that gospel. But in Acts chapter 15, he endorses it publicly. Now, the reason I'm coming back to this question here at the start of today's episode is that we are about to hear this text, which is a hymn we sing every week in church at the end of the Vesper service that recalls Paul's gospel, the light to the Gentiles, the Torah to the Gentiles. So, again, we have to keep hearing the story to prove the case, but one way or another, there is a connection between what's happening in the book of Acts in chapter 15 and the light to the nations, which is Paul's gospel, which is carrying the Torah, which came before Paul, and what's happening here in chapter 2 of Luke. There is a definite movement of that teaching through the birth of Jesus in the story. That is what this man lived to see. So, again, I'm going to keep testing this thesis that this odd occurrence of this spelling, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew word for Simon, may be a pointer in the Lucan diptych. This name, meaning hearing, appears throughout the Old Testament, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. We saw the conflation of the spellings of Simon and Simeon. How are these used by the authors? How are these significant? One of the reasons why I keep at this is because it's better to see these differences, explore what significance they might have, and then find out that they don't have a significance. But if we don't explore this possible significance, then we could be missing out on a piece of data that just stays under the rock. You may say, Father Mark, the connection is obvious without the unique spelling of the name because we're talking about Paul's gospel, which is the gospel to the Gentiles. So what's the big deal? The big deal is there may be other places that this spelling surfaces that create other connections. And those connections may shed new light on what's happening in the story. So it's not simply a question of what's happening here and now I got it. It's a question of seeing the itinerary of a term and understanding the connective tissue throughout the entire story. It may go beyond Luke Acts. It takes time. So you've got to point these things out and keep them with you in your satchel as you trace the steps of the author through the text. 
And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said. What strikes me immediately, Richard, having only recently reviewed the text of Ezekiel, is that the spirit, (laughs) which goes where it wants, the spirit of God, and the throne of God that carries his teaching that can go in and out of the temple as God pleases, is now moving into the temple. Remember, the temple is not the source in Ezekiel. God is the source. He can come into the temple. He can come out of the temple. His throne is mobile. So now the spirit is moving into the temple. That just hits me like a ton of bricks in verse 27. So the spirit is coming into the temple. Jesus is coming into the temple to obey the instruction, the law, the nomos, which refers to the Torah, which is the instruction of the Father, Elohim. So they are submitting to the custom of God's instruction. And he took, Simeon took the child into his arms and blessed Elohim. In the Greek, of course, it's Theos. So we have to rely on our knowledge of the Old Testament and remember that we are referring to Elohim, not a generic divinity. That's the problem with the Greek, is that you lose that texture from the Old Testament of Yahweh and Elohim and the difference. Okay? But that's what hits me. That's what hits me right out of the gate, that the Spirit is coming into the temple, not coming from the temple, Rich. And remember, we talked in the beginning of this movement towards the wilderness and this destructive tornado. Well, here it is. Yeah, this movement of the Holy Spirit I find fascinating because we've had the Holy Spirit animating the words that were spoken by several people already, and we're only in chapter 2. And we've been talking about a Spirit versus the Spirit, a Holy Spirit versus the Spirit. Here in chapter 27, it actually is in the Spirit. So there's a the, there's an article here. It doesn't say holy, though. When I read this, what I understand is that it's the same Holy Spirit that revealed to him what he was going to see before he died that brought him into the temple at this particular time. Just as Gabriel makes sure that there's no accident that the Lord's words are given to people when they need it, because he's the messenger, this Holy Spirit is animating people to move them around as needed. Hey, by the way, this is going to happen before you die. This isn't so he can sit and be happy before he dies. Oh, I can't wait till this happens. That's not why. It's so that on the day that's necessary, this spirit goes into his lungs, animates his limbs, and he walks with his feet into the temple when he needs to be there. And as you said, Father, the spirit doesn't come from the temple. The spirit animates this guy, Simeon, to come into the temple so that he can see this child. And the reason the child is there is because the parents are obedient to the law. 
And so we have the obedience of the law that brings Jesus into the temple. We have the Spirit animating Simeon to come into the temple at the same time, and this is how everything's going to work. Now, we can call this providence or whatever. That's if you're going to take it out of the realm of the Bible, but we're talking about a story here. Just like in a rom-com, the story is written so that these two people are going to meet at this street corner, and one's going to bump into the other one, and they're going to have an awkward I'm sorry moment where they're running into it, because the authors of the story decided they're going to bump into each other, and we need to have a way for these people to meet. In this story, it is the Holy Spirit and the law of Moses slash the law of the Lord that bring these two parties together, the parents of Jesus and Simeon. Not so Simeon can be happy and fulfilled or whatever. No, it's because there's a speech that needs to be delivered. In the rom-com, we want everyone to have lived happily ever after. In Scripture, we want the word of the Lord to be delivered. So these two parties meet up, thanks to the Holy Spirit, thanks to their obedience, so this word will be delivered, and that's the speech we're going to hear from Simeon here in a moment. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bond servant to depart in peace according to your word. I'm just going to say it, Rich, because it's exhausting the lengths to which translators go to avoid the discomfort of the text of the Bible, it does not say bondservant, it says slave. Now, now, Lord, you are releasing your slave. You're letting me off the hook. The text has the feel of someone who's been standing on duty, standing at attention, holding fast, and they're being released of a burden. It's like that expression from the 19th century, the way Protestants used to talk about someone going to their reward. Death was going to your reward. The guy's been doing his job, and the master has released him of his task. He's relieved according to your word. And this harkens back to the point that was made in last week's episode about the spirit functioning as the oracle. It wasn't the spirit, but... Holy Spirit, without the article the, functioning as an oracle. The Spirit oracled the word, the message. It's clearly about the word. So it's not some abstract feeling he got at a coffee shop when he gazed down at his navel and had an inner calling. It's the word. It's the phraseology. It's the same phraseology Paul uses when he talks about what is written in the Greek. So the guy has been holding fast to the word that was handed down. It's Pauline terminology. He is a slave of the gospel. Father Mark, how could you say that he's a slave of the gospel? The reason you're asking that question is you're thinking about this as something other than literature. The gospel narrative is about the gospel itself. The gospel narrative is about the movement of the Pauline gospel, which is itself a Trojan horse for the law of Moses in the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire is itself a character within the story. 
because it's obvious that the Romans didn't accept the gospel because how can you put a cross on your chariot and call yourself a Christian? That didn't work. How many people did Justinian have to execute to survive oppressive taxation policies in order to build Hagia Sophia? Who did we baptize? So again, it's literature. This character in the story held fast in the gospel according to what was written and is now, as we say in the liturgy, receiving the gift of a painless, blameless, and peaceful death and a good defense before the dread and terrible judgment seat of Christ. That is the spirit of verse 29. And he is going to his reward. It's a beautiful text, Richard. This imagery of the slave and the master, I think, it gets a little bit obscured because of the way that it's formulated. We have this syntax that we have followed the King James for a long time, and I think we need to break it down because you're absolutely right. He's a slave of the word, and this is where it all comes from because he's saying, now you're letting me go. Now letting me go, does that mean he's free? He's no longer going to be a slave? No. He had a duty to perform, and Simeon is saying, okay, now you're letting me go from the task that you had me do. And the word is Lord, we translate as Lord, but it's despota, it's not kyrios. So it's not Lord as if he's speaking to God, he's speaking to his master, the one who tasked him with waiting. Wait until you get this signal, that's your job slave. And so he sat and he waited. And the Holy Spirit guided to where he needed to be so he would get the signal that he needed to get. So now, master, you're setting me free of this job, of this task I had to perform, according to your word in peace. This has been fulfilled. Peace is not just the peace as in the absence of violence, because that doesn't fit here. What it means is the completeness, the shalem, not just the shalom that we have in Hebrew, but the root shalom means a fulfillment. It means a wholeness. He fulfilled his duty, so he's being let go. Okay, master, I did my job faithfully. It is now fulfilled. That's the point of this. He is a slave speaking in slave-master terminology, he had a job to do, and his job was to wait. That was it. He waited. And we're going to learn more about what he was waiting for, because like you said, Father, he is a slave to the Word. He's waiting for the Word, and we're going to learn more about that in the upcoming verses, what exactly he was waiting for, because what he was waiting for is now his speech and is now part of scripture that we're reading. Now, when I say is now part of, I'm inside the story. I'm not saying that Simeon was just talking and Luke was walking by and I thought, oh, wow, that's really special. I'm going to write that down. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that in the story, he underwent these events so that he could give this speech. And the entire Chapter 2 is Scripture. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, 
And here I want to just hit on a point that Father Paul made recently. It's something that you and I understand, but we've not made explicit enough over the years on the podcast. We've simply used either rendering of the word in English. So let's be explicit here. The word salvation, the word savior, here in Greek it's sotirios, but the function in Scripture is inclusive both of the outcome, which is salvation, but the action wrought, which is the victory of God. You can't be saved unless God achieves a victory. Honestly, Father Paul gave a beautiful example on Tarazi Tuesdays, which resonates with me as a kid growing up in the church. Theology never made any sense to me, but I understood as a kid that it was interesting and logical that Jesus won a fight on Pascha. He did something. There was a conflict, and he won. He descended into hell and won a battle. That is logical and intuitive. And that's the level on which Scripture operates. So if you're trying to figure out why your kids are turning their back on religion, it's because you've strayed from common sense in the way that you speak. Don't explain what you think happened. Just tell the story. Salvation is God's victory. So here... You have a man who is doing his duty. You want to teach your children? Teach them about what it means to do your duty. Teach them about what it means to hold fast and to stand your ground. Teach them about a man here in the story who stood his ground and waited to see God's victory, which was his salvation. Trust me, your kids won't leave the church. Salvation is the key word here. Significantly, I'm looking at one lexicon, and they have two entries. One is the means by which people experience divine salvation, and the other entry is the message about God saving people. They actually have two entries on that, and that seems curious to me because it's the same thing. When he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, what he sees is a baby. How is that salvation? First of all, there's a beautiful wordplay. He is seeing salvation because that's what Jesus means. He comes in to the sacrifice, right, because he was the opener of the womb, and his name is Jesus, which means salvation. And so he comes in, he says, I've seen your salvation. He's right here. He's in my arms. His name's salvation. <laughs> He's this baby right here. So that's the one. But the other is that this is part of a word of salvation. and this is the word that he's been obedient to. The salvation is that the people will be saved from their enemies, which is mostly just their ego anyway, if they follow the word that's been given to them. This is their salvation, is to continue to be obedient to my word. And he's now seeing with his eyes what he's been hearing all along, that this is where salvation is. He has been obedient because he heard the word and did it, that's why he's here holding this baby. And the baby is named salvation, but 
because with him comes a word of salvation that the story of Luke is going to show unfold. And this I find so beautiful in Luke because we don't have anything like this. We don't have this beautiful play on the name Jesus, Yeshua, Jesus. This only appears here in Luke, and it's a beautiful play. And the fact that it falls in the story right at this confluence of obedience of the parents and Simeon at the same time. Which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. For the first time, Richard, reflecting on this text, on Simeon standing fast and allowing God to act, he's just a slave. He himself has no agency. God is achieving the victory salvation for him. But it hit me for the first time, not just that there's an Ezekielian dimension to this with the spirit entering the temple, but it also has the feel of Exodus because he's powerless and God is acting. But then when you hear verse 31 and 32, which is the Pauline twist, that it's the gospel to the nations, you suddenly realize that it's Exodus, but now all of the nations are being brought in to this rescue, this victory. All of the nations are benefiting from the action of God's right hand on their behalf through this instruction. So it's not just God taking care of his people Israel and achieving victory against Pharaoh for them in the Red Sea. But now it's also for the Gentiles. It's really a beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful text. And it makes the martyrdom of the one who hears the word of the Lord and submits to it that much more powerful. This prayer in the end is about the martyr who hears and submits and offers his life so that everyone can enter into the teaching of Exodus. It's breathtaking. This is breathtaking. Salvation is what he prepared before the people, before the faces of the people, so that it was right there in front of everybody. He prepared it in front of everybody. The word is there for everyone to hear. And this salvation is also a light to be revealed to the nations, the light of revelation for the nations. So it's prepared in front of everybody, every people in the world, and it is a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. A light and a glory. This salvation is the glory of Israel because Israel shows by their very existence salvation. There is no nation without Exodus. And Exodus is the definition of what salvation is. This is why then the guy who brings them into the promised land after Moses is named Salvation. And his namesake is this dude, this baby, that Simeon happens to be holding in his hands. This is not by accident. This is the glory. Even when you were slaves, I made you a people. 
Even when you didn't have a weapon, I made you victorious. You defeated the entire army by the power of my right hand alone. And you despoiled them because I softened their hearts. But it is a light to the nations because it shows the way, it shows the path. That's what a light does. These are people before electricity, yada, yada, yada. They needed a light in order to stay on the path because they could lose their way and end up in danger. And it is this salvation that is this light. So what is the obedience? How does the obedience fit? If you listen to the word, it will lighten your way. And the glory of the salvation shows you which way to walk. And the way that Israel is experiencing that salvation in the Exodus is when Moses says, go across the sea. And they're like, how are we supposed to cross a sea? God splits the water in two, and it's dry land, and they just walk. Did they say, before we walk, let's have a conversation? No, there was no conversation. They just started walking. Now, afterwards, they're like, should we have walked? And Moses is like, what can I do? I don't know what to say. (laughs) It's too late now. You walked. God's not splitting the water again, so I don't know how you're going to plan to get back. The salvation that he sees holding this baby is the word that was prepared so that the nations would follow in this way the glory that the Lord's people Israel shows by their very existence. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.